It's Tuesday, January 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Senate trial of President Trump continues with Trump's defense team making their case that the president did nothing wrong with his actions toward Ukraine. But now, there may be enough new pressure on Senate Republicans to allow witnesses after a leak from the upcoming book by former National Security Advisor John Bolton. In the book, Bolton says that Trump explicitly told him that he wanted to continue freezing the military aid to Ukraine until they came to the table with investigations into his political rivals. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for more. Next, it was a tragic day on Sunday when Kobe Bryant, the former LA Laker and basketball legend, died in a helicopter crash with his daughter and seven others. The investigation into the crash will focus a lot on the fog and weather, but we'll also look into the helicopter itself and the pilot, who received clearance to fly in poor weather conditions. Chris Ancarlo, news correspondent for iHeartMedia, joins us for what we know about the investigation and also how the city of Los Angeles has reacted to the loss. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We deal with transcript evidence. We deal with publicly available information. We do not deal with speculation, allegations that are not based on evidentiary standards at all. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. There has been some new developments in the Trump impeachment that could make a call for actual witnesses to be called during the trial. There was a story that came out from the New York Times over the weekend about President Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, who has indicated that he would testify if he was asked to. But apparently he has a new book coming out that was being circulated around some circles. And I think he said that he even gave it to the White House. And in it, basically, John Bolton ties the Ukraine aid to President Trump. So he said that he was going to withhold the aid until Ukraine came to the table with investigations into the Bidens and so forth. Steph, tell us a little bit more about what was in this book and how we found out about it. Yeah, so this really is a key moment in this whole um, impeachment trial. Of course, it was looking like um, at the end of the day that there weren't going to really be enough votes to to get any additional witnesses or documents included into the trial. Like before the weekend, it seemed like there wasn't too much movement among Republicans to, to agree to that. But this Bolton news really doesn't matter because it could be enough to get just enough Republicans in the Senate to agree to asking Bolton to testify or for adding additional documents to be considered in the Senate trial, um, which is something that Democrats are really pushing for. And they feel like they deserve and need to have a more thorough look at what's going on and look at new evidence that that we've seen over the past few days. And the key part from uh, John Bolton's book that the New York Times reported on was that he said that he, that Trump explicitly told him he wanted to continue freezing the $391 million in security assistance to Ukraine until officials there helped with investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens. So explicitly, he claims that President Trump tied withholding the aid to investigations into Democrats and the Bidens, which is, of course, at the heart of this entire investigation, at the heart of why the House impeached Trump in the first place. The book is called The Room Where It Happened. It's supposed to come out on March 17th. The president has already responded, saying that he never told John Bolton that, and that if he did say that, it was only to sell a book. But as you mentioned, Democrats have been wanting to call witnesses. Republicans have been very hesitant on this. But the other thought process is, 
well, let's say some senators do want to call witnesses. They do call John Bolton. Based on what he says, it could open the floodgates because then you got to start calling other witnesses, maybe people that he might implicate, which a lot of people are saying could be Mick Mulvaney and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Yes, and that's one of the key concerns from Republicans who Axios has spoken to, where they fear that if they go down this road, if they let Bolton testify um, or allow other people to testify, that this will just snowball and that they'll have to address even more and more people. And both Republicans and Democrats don't want this to take forever. They don't want this to be dragged out into an election year. They want to get this done with. But they're nervous, especially Republicans are nervous that Bolton will say things that um, will make the issue seem even more clear toward President Trump and also lead to more people having to be subpoenaed and brought in front of the Senate, which will drag this on even further. And then, of course, the other thing to be looking for, something that Axios is watching, is who, if we do end up having witnesses come forward, who will Republicans want to have forward? Are we going to see Republicans start pushing again to have someone like Hunter Biden or Joe Biden come forward and testify in front of the Senate? Um, and so these are all this is all moving parts still. We're still watching this very closely. But um, the, the revelation over the weekend about John Bolton's book certainly is changing things up a bit in the Senate as we move forward in the impeachment trial. Who are the senators that we're watching with regards to witnesses? I know Senator Mitt Romney has said that I think he said increasingly likely now that there's going to be enough Republican senators to vote in favor of calling witnesses. But who else are we looking at besides him? So beyond Mitt Romney, we're also watching Senator Lisa Murkowski and Senator Susan Collins. Um, both of them have also been more willing to say that they'd be willing to, to hear additional witnesses to look at additional documents. They've already been the ones that people have been watching and thinking they might end up voting to bring in additional witnesses. And again, today, they reemphasize that this might be the turning point. They seem very willing to, to vote for more witnesses. Um, so those are a few that we're definitely watching. Another one is Senator Lamar Alexander is someone that, that people have seen as being on the fence when it comes to bringing forward additional witnesses. One of the interesting things about this is that whenever a current or former administration official writes a book, they have to submit a draft or something to the White House so they can review it. And in the case of John Bolton, you know, if there's anything related to national security that they might want to take out of there, the White House can review all those things. So as far as accounts from Mr. Bolton and maybe his, some of his lawyers, they said that they sent this draft for review to the White House. So they at least kind of had this advanced knowledge of what John Bolton might say. Yeah, the, the White House, the National Security Council in particular, was the, were the people who actually looked at the book, who received the book manuscript to, as you said, look over to see whether there were any national security concerns of anything that was included in the book. Um, and this, of course, is something that many of us were watching closely. Did the White House lawyers who are representing Trump in this impeachment trial, did they know about the allegations in the book? And did they lie to the Senate at any point in defending Trump, saying that Trump didn't know about certain things when they had evidence that he had? Um, and so at this point, according to our reporting so far, the only people that we know who looked at it is the National Security Council. And they've claimed that no other White House personnel outside of its purview had seen the manuscript of the book. Um, you know, whether or not someone else has seen it, you know, it, through back channels is unclear at the moment. But at least as far as we know, the National Security Council is claiming that no other White House personnel has seen it. The defense lawyers for the president are going to be saying that nothing of what John Bolton says changes any key facts. The aid was mm -hmm. released. You know, it was only briefly paused 
and that it was released to Ukraine without the announcement of any investigations. So it really doesn't change any of the big narrative that they're trying to put forward there. When do we expect the Trump defense to wrap up and this possible vote on witnesses to come? So we expect the Trump, the Trump team to finish up their arguments in the Senate sometime tomorrow. But, you know, these things are kind of in play on Saturday. For example, they only um, spoke for about two hours when and they have a total of 24 hours that they can argue. Um, and but we don't expect them to actually use those full 24 hours. But it is interesting to note that today when they were presenting their case and defending the president in front of the Senate, they, they didn't really spend a lot of time on the Bolton accusations. As you pointed out, they kind of stuck to their arguments, claiming that this isn't worth impeachment, that what Trump did wasn't illegal and that um, you know, focusing more on, on how the House has not has not done a good enough job at explaining why the president should be impeached. Well, a little more intrigue into this, as we've been saying, the biggest unknown is if any witnesses will be called in the Senate trial for the impeachment of President Trump. So we'll still have to continue and monitor that. Steph Kite, reporter Absolutely. for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. When ATC asked what the pilot planned to do, there was no reply. Radar data indicates the helicopter climbed to 2,300 feet and then began a left descending turn. Last radar contact was around 9.45 a.m. and is consistent with the accident location. Joining us now is Chris and Carlo, news correspondent for iHeartMedia based in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Yeah, of course. It was a tragic day on Sunday when the helicopter that Laker legend Kobe Bryant was flying in crashed. Uh, he died along with his daughter Gianna and seven other people. Um, you know, every you know, you've been seeing media reports and what Kobe meant to basketball, to sports in general, to the world. Uh, and then in Los Angeles, you see people the outpouring of love that's uh, been going on. People gathering at Staples Center trying to remember him. Uh, we still don't know too much about the actual crash itself. You know, we're still looking for why this all happened. The NTSB has opened their investigation. They are on the scene now. Um, that's the latest information that we have there. Chris, tell us what the NTSB has said about the flight path and the helicopter and all the details we know so far. Yeah, so the NTSB right now is drawing out all of the physical, what they call perishable evidence. So anything that maybe could uh, deteriorate out in the open or that needs to be collected in order to piece together the puzzle a little bit later, they're going to be looking at many different aspects of this crash. So that means they'll get into the books of the company. They'll get into the background of the pilot. They'll get into what the air traffic looked like uh, around Southern California during that time. And, of course, they'll get into the weather, what were the conditions like. They'll look at the engines of the aircraft to, to see if there was any malfunction or error there. And then they'll also look into the uh, mechanics of the aircraft and to see that everything was in good working order. So all of that ball together is going to be the broader NTSB investigation. What we heard today was a more ironed out timeline of this flight as it took off from John Wayne Airport down in Santa Ana, which is about 70 air miles from Camarillo, and, uh, and started its flight, worked its way up to Burbank. And it was at Burbank that the pilot requested to go from visual flight rules to special VFR, special visual flight rules. Uh, he put in that request, and the reason is he wanted to transit some airspace there uh, along those special rules, which basically says that 
He can fly when the feeling uh, the ceiling is below 1,000 feet, which is kind of a basic minimum, and also with less than three miles of visibility. So they ended up circling right around the uh, the airport there in Burbank for about 12 minutes until that request was approved. And it was at that point that they started to work their way back down the 118 freeway. And using the freeways, they followed the 118 to the 101 and then worked their way down towards Camarillo. As they uh, passed through Burbank and Van Nuys airspace, uh, they then requested to fly straight through to Camarillo, which was where they were going to land. The uh, The pilot requested what's called flight following. And basically that just means there's a constant contact, if you will, between air traffic control and the pilot. Uh, the air traffic control said that the pilot was flying too low for flight following. That's not necessarily a warning as much as it is just a statement of, you know, we can't help you out based on where you are. We can't get a whatever it is that they need in order to maintain that following. So the pilot then requested to rise and to avoid a cloud layer and asked the air traffic control for clearance. That was the last contact between the pilot and, and air traffic control. So radar indicated that the aircraft rose to about 2,300 feet. And then there was a left descending turn, and then that was the last radar contact. What we know on the ground is that when it hit, it was at just about 1,085 feet above sea level, and the uh, debris field is about five to 600 feet. They've got a pretty, pretty uh, condensed scattering. You know, if you if you think about air aircraft accidents and crashes often those debris fields will last for maybe a half mile or a mile or even further so that gives you an idea of just how hard the aircraft was able to um, to hit the surface there yeah and it's it does really seem like the weather uh, probably played the most important factor obviously we don't know yet if there was any type of mechanical failure or whatnot but just uh, all those requests for uh, and and he was granted the pilot was granted to fly in these poor weather conditions. It just really seems that all of that is adding up to what was the culprit. And, and as you said, in the end, when he climbed up and then dropped back down so rapidly, uh, that was where everybody uh, unfortunately perished. And, and um, you know, investigators and and coroners were out there trying to gather. Uh, remains and even the terrain there is a little difficult. They all had to uh, uh, to hike in and and be flown in as well. Yeah, so the NTSB is actually asking for pictures from people who are around Calabasas and had taken pictures of the weather conditions or had taken pictures somewhere near the crash site so they can get an idea of what the weather conditions were like. They were also pretty quickly, after making that request, to, they were pretty quick to say, listen, it's not that we're just focusing on the weather here. There are all of these other factors that we have to look into, but this is just one important piece of the puzzle. Certainly there are, and there is a lot of reporting out there about how difficult it is to fly in conditions like this, how thick that cloud layer was uh, specifically above Camarillo or excuse me, above uh, Calabasas and how easy perhaps it could have been for the pilot to become disoriented while, you know, either asking for that, uh, for that increase in altitude or while, uh, while moving across what has been estimated is that the aircraft hit the hillside at a pretty high rate of speed around 160 miles an hour. So, um, yeah, that, that that tells you that the pilot was at least moving with a certain degree of purpose. Yeah, and, and every time there's a crash, a plane crash, or something like that, people always ask, "Is there a black box?" And that's not the case with this one, right? There's nothing. There was no black box on this helicopter. 
No, they're not required to be a, a black box on an aircraft like this. And you know, it's important to talk about the aircraft as well as Sikorsky that uh, is a twin engine aircraft. So, you know, that, that's important when you're trying to narrow down the possibilities of what could happen. Because, you know, when you have two engines, that means if one fails, you at least have enough power to, to work your way back down to the ground uh, in an emergency landing. In, in this case, we didn't hear any sort of emergency call. There was no mayday that we know of. Uh, and so that tells you that whatever happened happened quickly and was catastrophic enough that the pilot couldn't even get anything out on the radio, which, you know, in most cases is instantaneous. It's always important to remember the victims and all of this. Obviously, everybody knows Kobe Bryant and, and you know, the world, the sports world. A lot of people really feel for that. But, you know, it also included in the victims where his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, who goes by Gigi, uh, some of her um, uh, friends that uh, play basketball with her, their parents, some coaches, I mean, they were on their way to um, one of Kobe's uh, um, sports uh, tournaments, uh, one, of, one of their basketball tournaments where his daughter was going to play. And, you know, these were all just people united by the sport of basketball. Obviously, a lot has been made about his daughter and her aspirations with basketball. And they've been seen together at Laker games. But these are the victims, really a very close-knit group of of people who who played basketball together. And he coached the team, things like that. Yeah, you know, it's important to think about this in in the context of what they were doing and where they were going. So the the Mamba Cup was this big basketball tournament, and it's up at the uh, Mamba Sports Academy, which was something started and created by Kobe Bryant, not just for youth sports, but also, you know, I mean, you hear great stories about NBA players who trained up there with Kobe or with other players. And it's just a really nice facility for not only basketball, but also other sports like volleyball up there. Um, And so, you know, you've got these people that are gearing to go, go back up there again. They're down in Newport beach, uh, 70 air miles from, uh, from thousand Oaks. And if anybody knows anything about Southern California, 70 air miles is about five hours of driving when you really consider traffic even on a Sunday. So that that gives you an idea of why perhaps they were flying up there. And they were flying up there with a number of people who were from the neighborhood. Um, And, you know, I guess not really hidden within this tragedy, but certainly uh, a piece of this tragedy tragedy is you have a couple of families that are just, I mean, they're incredibly impacted. The Altabello, uh, Altabelli family had three family members, the, the father, the wife, and one of their daughters on this flight. So you've got, I think they had two other kids who now are having to deal with basically losing more than half of their family. You know, you had other families where you had mothers and daughters, and this is, um, this is also going to just eat away at what is a tight knit group that is part of like these traveling basketball teams and sports teams. I was talking to um, Matt Money Smith, who is a radio host, a sports radio host down here. And he got to know Kobe during his time covering the Lakers. Uh, but he says, you know, he also was often running into Kobe on the kids sports circuit, on the volleyball circuit. And so you've got these people that, that are running into each other on a constant level and they get to know each other because they're seeing each other on the sidelines and, you know, maybe traveling together in certain instances. And so you've got this sort of extended family that is also heavily impacted beyond just, you know, Kobe Bryant and his daughter and what they mean to greater Los Angeles. Yeah. Chris and Carlo, news correspondent for iHeartMedia, based in Los Angeles. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, of course. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>